Good morning, New City family, and thanks for joining us here at New City Church as we uh, kick off the new year together. I do want to say this really quickly before I jump in. As you leave today, uh, you'll be handed these uh, prayer and fasting cards. So we have today, or starting tomorrow, is our quarterly five days of prayer and fasting. Uh, we do this once a quarter at New City Church. On this card, you'll find just five things that you can pray for and different ways that you can fast. You could fast a couple, maybe 24-hour fasts uh, from a dietary food group, or maybe what I would recommend, maybe the simplest thing, is that if you would just fast from one meal a day for the next five days, days, take some time going before the Lord for some needs and I'd love to hear what God is doing and just an invitation to start the year off with him. So you'll get all the information on these cards as you walk out and go to newcityrdu.com as well if you want more information. And of course, we'll uh, do some prayer and worship on Thursday night as well. And can I just say this for the prayer and worship night? Um, Don't let your pride stop you from being prayed for. Like, doesn't matter how small you think it is or what you're going through, like, the people of God are supposed to love and serve each other. And so I, we did this last year uh, for one of our prayer and uh, fasting weeks, and then we had a lot of really cool things that God did. So I just want to encourage you to join us uh, for that. Now, uh, today, we're kicking off a brand new series called Controversial Jesus. And can I just say you are in for a treat? Uh, this will be, without a doubt, the best sermon I have preached all year. And so uh, <laughs> some of you are like, wait, what? Now, uh, Nick, to start off, here's what I want to do. In a second, don't put them up yet. I want to start off by showing you some caricatures. So some caricatures of some famous people. And as soon as you recognize who it is, like, don't be like, mm, shout it out. Like, say who it is. I need some interaction or this won't, this won't play well. Okay, so you can put the first person up. And who, who is this? Oh, that's right. Some big fans in the front row. All right, that's Snoop. Right, caricature of Snoop or boy Snoop, and then he went through like Snoop Lion for time, and then he went back to whatever. You know, so some Snoop something, uh, that's Snoop. Um, here, here's the, the second one. Okay, so we got any Swifties in the house? That's like some of you. Okay, that's been million dollars on concert tickets. Um, so, so Taylor Swift. Okay, uh, uh, maybe he, here's another one. One more. There we go. So, so there, we got Rocky, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, that's, that's him. Now, um, we got one more I want to show you. And again, you've, you know who this is, okay? So, so as soon as you recognize who this person is, you shout it out, okay? Here's the last one. <laughs> You're like, who is that? Um, this is a picture of myself that I, went, I put in a character AI generator, and this is what popped out. So um, that's me. Apparently, I have donkey teeth. I didn't know that. And so... I, I'm glad some of you couldn't, were not quick to recognize that. If you were, <laughs> I don't know if that's worse for you or for me. Um, now, now, here's why I start that. So today we're starting this uh, series, and you can take that off the screen. Uh, we're starting a new series, <laughs> Controversial Jesus. Okay. Now, now, here's why I started with those uh, caricatures. Caricatures, typically of famous people or of me, if you can't recognize it, um, are when somebody exaggerates some characteristic of a person, And then they'll minimize or eliminate another characteristic of a person for a desired effect. So they might emphasize their eyes, their ears, their chin, or in my case, maybe their teeth, whatever it is, right? Now, now I shared that because today as we start this series, Controversial Jesus, if we're honest, this is what many people do with Jesus. Even when we are not careful, you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can do the same thing. There are aspects we might personally like, and so we highlight those things. And then there are other aspects that we might not like or we might uh, maybe disagree with. And so we downplay or minimize or even outright deny. And sometimes we do this because we are trying to selectively edit Jesus so that he will be palatable to the world around us. So, for example, in different cultures and different times, they might emphasize different things. In our culture today, we might highlight the parts of Jesus that stood for the oppressed 
and then we downplay or ignore the things about sexuality or maybe hell or the exclusivity of Christ, which by the way are all things we are going to talk about in this series. And so I just want to start us off with this reminder that Jesus is not a mascot. He is not a character. He is Lord. And so therefore, you and I submit to him as Lord. We do not ask him to become a mascot or to become a caricature to approve of our own internal desires. And so the reality is our culture is not silent on many of these issues that we're going to talk about over the next five weeks. And so it would be unwise for us to not speak about them in the church. Again, we do not want to conform to the pattern of the world, but we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to be transformed into the way of Jesus, even and maybe especially the, the places where it is unpopular or goes against the ideas of the world we currently live in. And so to start this series today and to prepare for the rest of it, and can I just say, if New City Churches are home, uh, can you be here for all, all these next five weeks? I would encourage you to be here as we talk about things you are seeing in everyday, ordinary life. We want to see what Jesus says about these things. We are going to see in this series how Jesus is a decidedly controversial figure. And following him, if you choose to follow Jesus, that will make it so, make it true of you as well. Okay, now, now here is what we do know. In our culture today, um, it is increasingly, it is increasingly more controversial uh, to follow Jesus publicly and faithfully. It is becoming increasingly more so. In fact, here's a picture you can put on the screen. This was the New York City skyline in 1956. Now, do you think there is any world in which this would happen today? That would happen today. Now, I, I, I point this out not to say uh, that everybody in the 1950s was a Christian on fire to Jesus. I'm, I'm not saying that was true at all. But I am at least saying that it was more culturally acceptable to live out your faith publicly than it was, than it is today. It's an increasingly become more of an uncomfortable thing, a less acceptable thing, if you're a follower of Jesus, to live out your faith publicly. Publicly. Now, there are a lot of factors that have played into how we have gotten here, but I just want to, what I want to do is I just want to highlight a chart that was uh, published by the Wall Street Journal last year about how American values have shifted from 1998 to 2023. So, for the last uh, 25 years, you can put this chart on the screen. If you can't quite see it, starting on your left is patriotism, then religion, then having children, community involvement, and on the right is money. So these are the values, 1998 was the first dot, uh, uh, 2019 was the second dot, and 2023 is the third dot all the way on the right. Now, what you see in this chart is that anything that, that requires you to think larger or outside of yourself, so maybe uh, uh, patriotism or community or having kids or religious ideas, anything that's kind of greater than you, uh, those values have gone down. And here's the thing, when you stop believing in something greater or more important than yourself, then the self becomes the greatest thing that there is. Now, I'm not saying that everybody needs to be super patriotic or uh, super, you know, want to have tons of kids or really community. I'm not saying you have to do those things, but it is just curious that the things that do require or things that would say, hey, there is something greater than myself that is more important. All those things have gone down. And the only value that allows you to live a more self-fulfilled or self-expressed life Life, which is money, has gone up. In fact, this chart, I think, sums up somewhat well what Carl Truman, who's a Christian philosopher and thinker, he wrote a book uh, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to the Sexual Revolution. 
So in his book, he writes a lot about the idea of, of expressive individualism. He's not the only one to write about it, but the, this idea of expressive, expressive individualism, which is to say that the way to be happy in life, this is what our culture believes today, the way to be happy in life is, to, is through self-fulfillment and self-expression. Self-fulfillment and self-expression. It is not, it is not to live for something greater than yourself. So it's not self-control, it's not self-sacrifice or, or self-denial. Uh, it's certainly not denying yourself to follow Jesus. That certainly is not going to make you happy. Instead, the way to be happy is not to look outside of you, but to look inside of you. To express and fulfill your desires and your feelings without any outside or external restraints. That is how you become happy. And so again, in his book, uh, you can put it on the screen. I'm going to read a quote that Carl Truman, the, the book is fascinating, by the way. It's a big, dense book. It's really good. This quote is a little dense as well, so I'm going to read it and kind of explain as I go. But in his book about self-expression uh, or, or expressive individualism, Carl uh, uh, Truman writes this, few, if any of us, are likely to argue that our own moral views are simply based on our emotional preferences. So in our culture today, we would all say, we believe what we believe, we vote for who we vote for, we have the ideologies we have because we have logically got to them. That's what we would say. None of us would say they are based on our emotions or our feelings. But, he continues, it seems today to offer a good way of understanding how most people actually live their lives. In other words, we say it's not based on emotion, but actually a lot of our arguments are emotionally based. So, for example, he says, it just feels right. You people say that for a lot of things. Why are you making the decision? Why are you doing this? Well, it just feels right. Or he says, and once the basis for such discussion lacks any agreed metaphysical or metanarrative framework, it is doomed to degenerate into nothing more than the assertion of incomm uh, incommensurable opinions and preferences. In other words, what he's saying is once all of your decisions come from, well, I just do this because I believe it or it feels right or it makes me happy and we don't have any agreed upon external truths, right? Whatever is true for you is true for you. Uh, then this is what happens. He says, when it comes to moral arguments... The tendency of the present age, the day in which we live today, is to assert our moral convictions as normative and correct by rejecting those with which we disagree as irrational prejudice rooted in personal emotional preference. This is precisely what underlies the ever-increasing number of words ending in phobia. And now hear me, I'm not against emotion. But when we, when, we, when we think that every decision we make is logical, when really it's more emotional, and we cannot agree with each other about why we're making decisions, well, then we assume that anyone who disagrees with us, votes differently than us, lives a different lifestyle than us, the only reason they did it is because they are flawed, because they are dumb, or they are phobic in some way. Now, I'm not saying uh, homophobia or xenophobia or what is, I'm not saying those, those can't sometimes be appropriate labels, but we all know in our culture today, everybody just throws phobia around from somebody because we just say, well, if you don't agree with me, it must be because you are wrong, because you have not come, you haven't understood, your, your logic is flawed. Meanwhile, we don't understand that even our own places that we've come to, maybe not be so much based on logic, but simply on feelings and what makes us feel good. And so we have all these words ending in phobia that we throw at other people who disagree with us. And so all that to say, if expressive individualism is more and more people's definition of the good life, which by the way, in our culture, it is, then the message of Christianity that Jesus is Lord is controversial, right? That Jesus is Lord, not your preferences, ideas, or what you think will make you happy, but Jesus, well, then of course that's controversial because according to scripture, according to Jesus himself, as we'll see here in a few minutes, you are not Lord. 
Your desires are not Lord, but rather someone or something outside of you is. And therefore, to believe that the way to be happy is to fulfill your personal desires and to express whatever feelings you are having at the moment, then any outs- any, anything outside of you and your preferences will, or external constraints will be labeled as one of two things. So if what you feel should drive all your decisions and anyone else tells you not to do that, then, then one of two things will be happening. One, it will be re- repressive. So if you apply it to yourself, so if you have a desire and you decide not to act on that desire, our culture would say you are repressing yourself. It is repressive. If you apply it to yourself in your own desires and you don't act on a desire you have, culture would say, well, that's repressive, right? You do you. So if it's an internal restraint, if you apply it to yourself, it's repressive. And if it's an external restraint, it is oppressive, right? If you apply it to others. And so you put the next one up, oppressive, if you apply it to others. So if if anyone has an idea and you disagree with that idea and you say to that person, hey, I don't know you should do that. I don't think that's right. Well, then you will be labeled as oppressive, repressive if you apply it to yourself, oppressive if you apply it to others. And then this is what this leads to for us. This leads to a privatization of your faith right? Whatever you believe is good for you, right? We all know this to be true, right? Don't tell anyone or expect anyone else to believe it. To do so is to be oppressive. It's to be oppressive. And so I, I'm going to give you a practical example of how it plays out. Um, I'm, I, this is not about the topic or the presidential candidate. I'm just using this as an example, okay? So a couple, uh, a recent, one of our recent election cycles, there was a presidential candidate asked about their views on abortion, He was asked about his view on abortion, and here's what he said. He said, personally, as a Catholic, I'm opposed to abortion, but publicly, I think women have the right to choose. Now, now here's why I want to give this example. And you can give this example on the right and the left. There's there's plenty of examples you go through. I'm just going to use this one. Um, Here's why I give this example. Everyone, of course, is entitled to their own opinion, especially in America. But as a Catholic, this person has taken a position of where his, uh, here's what my faith teaches, that all life matters, doesn't matter how big, small, ethnicity, gender, placement, all life matters. But uh, the, functionally in our cultural today, the only way to live out my faith is to, and, and, and to operate in a secular society is if it is privatized. So here's what I believe, but I'm not going to put that on anyone else because that would be oppressive towards them. So I believe this, but I functionally live something else. Now, now here's, hear me. Essentially, here's the deal. Everyone can think or believe whatever they want. Everyone can think or believe whatever they want, but don't try and tell anyone else about it or how to live their lives. That's kind of the, 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 the feeling you get when you hear this quote. And so hear me this morning, especially if you're a follower of Jesus or you're interested in becoming one. We do not live in a culture that wants to hear about or to submit to who Jesus is. You do not live in a culture that wants to hear about who Jesus really is, maybe a character of Jesus, yes, but who the real Jesus is, they don't want to hear it, and they certainly don't want to submit to him, right? And so if you're following Jesus, you just need to know this. Like, this is the culture in which we live. And so we'll see today, over these next couple of minutes, and in this series, that Jesus does not fit into an expressive, individualistic culture where everyone should just live their own, quote-unquote, truth. Jesus will not fit into that. In, fact, in John 14, 6, Jesus says that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. And so there is, and therefore we should expect friction. If you're, fo- if you're faithfully following Jesus, there is, and you should expect friction in your culture if you want to honor God with your life and yet live in the world in which you live. Which leads us to the increasing feeling in our culture 
that Christians are dangerous, that they are oppressive, and that they need to be silenced. This is why this feeling is like this. Again, expressive individualism, 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 you know what I'm trying to say. Do whatever you want. Jesus says, no, don't do whatever you want. In fact, deny yourself and follow me. Right? We should not, therefore, be surprised by the fact that our culture does not like the Christian message. In fact, Scripture tells us as much. So I'm going to read a couple of verses today. You can pull out the Bible if you want, but they're also all going to be on the screen. But if you want to flip into the, the, black, the black Bibles in front of you, you can do that as well. The first is in John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. This was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And he writes this, Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. He's literally saying, as you follow in the way of Jesus, no matter what culture or time period you lived in, do not be surprised if the world hates you. No, it doesn't matter how loving and kind and gracious you are, don't be surprised. Or even Jesus himself in Luke chapter 12, this is something you won't see popularized in the media. Here's what Jesus says. He says, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, which I guess is probably already happening anyway, but Jesus is just kind of crystallizing it, right? Now, now here's what's happening here. The reason, the reason for these two passages, and there's many more we could read, uh, that Jesus talks about, uh, that, that Jesus says division or hatred is coming our way is not, okay, it's not because Jesus desires division or that he desires animosity, but rather simply that if you go against the grain of the world, the world will not like it. And listen, you can be the most loving, kind, gentle person in the world. And you, you might have been in this situation in your own life. If you do not play into what people around you are doing, even if you're not saying anything, judging them, condemning them, people are going to feel a certain way, right? If you don't participate in the office politics or in the gossiping, or if, you're, if you have a spouse and you're a guy and you're hanging out with your guy friends and everyone's bashing their wife and you say nothing negative about your wife, you're going to be made fun of right? And say nothing about actually speaking against what wrongdoing someone might be doing. This is what causes division. Jesus says, follow my way. And when you do, it will cause division in some way in your life. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, the apostle Paul writes this. You can put it on the screen. He says, in fact, all, so not some, not just the mean ones, not just the jerks, not just, but rather all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who's excited they came to church this morning, right? <laughs> all, all. So uh, again, the, the, the reason is, uh, and hear me, I'm not, this is not like a doom and gloom message, like, oh, we're being, Christians in America are being persecuted. It's the worst. I get it that it is hard on other places in the world, but it is also increasingly becoming harder here, that there will be things in your life that will be harder for you that you might be made fun of or that you might miss out on if you're actually trying to follow the way of Jesus. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or maybe just one, four, or one more. In James chapter four, James is the half-brother of Jesus. So he's a brother of Jesus, but you know, uh, half-brother of Jesus technically. He writes this. James 4.4, 4. you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. What James is saying here is that if you're following in the way of the world, that you then are trading intimacy with God for intimacy with the world. 
And as a Jesus follower, therefore, you should expect controversy. And if you don't expect following Jesus to put you in an uncomfortable position, you'll probably rather walk around your entire life with this idea, instead of living for the Lord, living for others and thinking, do they like me? Right? Instead of saying, here are my convictions, who I'm going to live for. And rather, it's living for other people, trying to impress other people. Do they like me, right? Do they like my shirt? Do you like my clothes? Do you like my shoes? Do you like what I post on Instagram? Oh, you didn't like what I post on Instagram. You didn't give me enough likes. So I'm going to take it down from Instagram. I'm going to repost it on Facebook. You liked what on Facebook. Okay, uh, you like my hairstyle. You like that I said this. You don't like when I say this. You like when I go these places. Oh, you like this hobby. I'm going to tell you about this hobby. You don't like that I have this hobby, so I'm not going to tell you about this hobby. So do you like me? Even, even this can happen with our faith. Right? Do you like that I have this conviction? Oh, you don't like that I have this conviction. Well, I won't have to say this conviction. Do you like that I have this stance? Or do you like this about my, my faith with Jesus? Oh, I can change this or I can suppress this. I can hold this down. So you don't, do you like me? Right? I don't have to be a Christian all the time. I can just be a Christian at, at New City or when I'm at my community group, when I'm around my Christian friends. But I don't have to be a Christian when I'm around when my non-Christian friends because that makes them uncomfortable. Right? Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Right? This is where the privatization of faith comes from. That we're so afraid about the friction that it might cause in our life that we believe something internally, but externally we live a different value. Does the world like me? James is saying you can't have it both ways. Or put another way, you can have friendship with the world or with God. You can have friendship with the world and the desires and the things of the world, the values of the world in which you live, or God. Because hear me, there are many things I'm going to talk about in this series, so you should be here every week. Uh, sometimes people say, as a side note, well, my church never talks about this, or the church never talks about this. Can I just say, if you go to church once a month, if you go to church six times a year, you have no idea what your church is talking about. So be here. Just be here. Nobody can say that here in New City. Be here for what we're going to talk about, okay? Sorry, as a side note. Maybe that came across hard. I didn't mean to. Anyway, there are many things in the world that are at odds with the thing of God. You hear me? You cannot please everybody, but check this out. You can please God. Isn't that amazing? Like the, the God of the entire stinking universe. You can please him. That's crazy. But you cannot please everyone. If you want to have it both, the world and friendship with God, you will not. You cannot please God. James says this is adultery, which by the way, he's using a metaphor that was often used in the Old Testament for the Israelites who were accused of time and time again of doing this in the Old Testament. When they would go for, they would turn away from the things of God and they would start practicing maybe the evil, sinful, wicked things of the cultures that surrounded them. They said, you have committed adultery, that you have cheated your one true love. Instead of following the ways of the Lord, you've now followed the ways of the world. So again, to follow Jesus is to invite controversy. And hear me, if, there, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, if there is no controversy or tension in your life, you and I must ask ourselves which parts of Jesus we've clipped out. Which parts of Jesus have we might have cliffed out? Now, now here's the challenge. Okay, as I was saying all this, here's the challenge. Following Jesus will lead in some way, in some tension, in some uncomfortableness to some controversy in your life. It could be being made fun of. It could be being called things or accused of things that are not true about you simply because you're following Jesus. Right? Following Jesus will lead to controversy. However, not all controversy means you're following Jesus. So you're like, great, everyone hates me. I must be, not necessarily, not necessarily, right? Not all controversy means you're following Jesus. Again, hear me. The hate and the controversy that Jesus talks about in his, in his word is about with the world is not from mistreating people. 
Um, it is not from joining, it, rather, it is from not joining in on some of their practices, which people don't like. If you don't do what other people do around you, they don't like that. Or, even worse, speaking out against those things and calling them evil or sinful. No matter how loving and kind you are when you're doing it, the world will not like it. So again, in this series, the next couple of weeks, uh, biblical sexuality in our culture, controversial. Hell, controversial. Separation, or or rather, Jesus being the only way to God, like the exclusivity of Christ, controversial. Grace, extremely controversial. Like we love this idea of diversity until we realize somebody actually votes or thinks differently than us, right? It's extremely controversial. The fact that you'll actually love and care for and be friends with someone who is different than you, we're gonna talk about. These things are extremely controversial in our culture today. Following Jesus will lead to controversy. It reminds me of a, a funny story of a college student who was writing a book report for one of his classes, and the professor told the class that they could write a book report on any book they wanted. And so this, uh, uh, this student was a Christian, and the student decides to write a book report on the book of Jonah in the Bible. And so he does his research, he writes his book report, it comes time for the day to turn in his book report, and he turns it in, and the professor laughs in his face, and he says, uh, you know that the story of Jonah is not real. Like, you just wrote a book report on a, on a fictional book. This didn't actually happen. And the college student says, yes, it is. And the professor says, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. So they go back and forth. They go back and forth. Finally, the professor goes, okay, fine. If it's real, how in the world could Jonah live for three days in the belly of a fish? Like, we just know that that cannot happen. And the student says, well, I don't, I don't know actually how he did it, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And the professor goes, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? He says, well, then you ask him. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, so, so hear me. <laughs> there is a way to be controversial that is nothing like Jesus. There's a way to be controversial that is nothing like Jesus. And some people create controversy in the name of Jesus that is despicable to Jesus. So the question then becomes, well, how do we navigate this? How do we do this Jesus thing and and create controversy in a good way, but not a bad way? Well, the answer comes by walking in grace and truth, just like Jesus did. The balance of grace and truth together. That's the goal. For example, in John chapter one, starting about talking about Jesus, the apostle John writes this in verse 11, it'll be on the screen. He says, he, talking about Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive them, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The invitation to come to God is not based on your effort, but what Christ has done for you. And then verse 14, he says, the word became flesh. So Jesus, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the only one, as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. So here's the main idea this morning, okay? The way of Jesus is unconditional grace and uncompromising truth. Here's the way of Jesus. Unconditional grace, uncompromising truth. Now now hear me. Depending on how you are wired, you will naturally lean more into either grace or truth. Depending on how you're wired, you'll naturally be either more grace-filled or more truth-filled. And so, if you've been more towards truth, I mean, that's me, that's me, I'm kind of in this camp as well. If you've been more towards truth, you're more justice-oriented, right and wrong or really black and white for you, you kind of like take out the bad guy, right? If you're not careful, life can start turning into a whack-a-mole where everything becomes a nail 
and you're a hammer and you have to set the record straight no matter what, no matter your tone, no matter what you say, no matter what you have to do, people have to know the truth. And so if you have a truth bent and you are not careful, you can end up hammering people whom God loves. You can be short on patience. You can have a lack of trust in the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will do his work in that person if you just faithfully love them and show up. And you can, quite honestly, you can be a jerk if you're not careful. Now, if you're a grace person, right, you're more likely to be a peacekeeper, that you love to give mercy. You might be more naturally nurturing, right? You see the pain of others and are more willing to give the benefit of doubt when they make certain decisions. Uh, you, might, you might cry um, during those manipulative uh, animal commercials where they have like a starving dog and they say, give money now. Like you might actually like pick up the phone and, and call them. Um, but if you're not careful, when it comes to speaking truth or to standing up for the truth, you'll stay silent to keep the peace, and in an effort not to rock your relationships, you'll hurt the person by withholding the truth they really need. And so, so here's what happens. Grace people can look at truth people and think, well, you're mean and you're unloving and you're unkind. And truth people can look at grace people and think, well, you're soft and you're weak and you're compromising. But yet what we need is both unconditional grace and uncompromising truth. Maybe here's a good analogy. If you take a rubber band. So here's a little blue rubber band I have. This is the tension that we have to live in. And it will create a tension in your life to live both the un unconditional grace and uncompromising truth. It will be a tension in your life. Because here's what happens. If we offer all grace and no truth, if I let one side of this rubber band go, I'm just going to hit you. If I let one side of this rubber band go, right, here's what will happen. If, uh, if I'm all truth and no grace, if I do not deliver the truth in the of the way of Jesus, the way Jesus wants us to do it, uh, and it's accepted by everyone who came to him, and he gave everyone, by the way, an opportunity to come a child of God. Jesus, full of truth, gives everyone an opportunity to come a child of God. If I let the grace part go, we will wound people and bar them from coming to Christ. If we're so heavy-handed and hammering people, you and I can wound people, can bar people if we let grace go with the truth. And so we have to live in the tension of grace and truth. And again, if I'm all grace and no truth, then I can hurt people, right? In fact, what does scripture say? What does Jesus say? That the truth will set you free. You have to know the truth of who Jesus is and what he's called you to do to live in his freedom. You have to know Jesus and his commands to actually be free. So if I'm all grace and no truth, I cannot help people see the light, and so we have to live in a tension of both grace and truth together. Now, you might be asking, well, how can I actually practically do this? It sounds great in theory, unconditional grace, uncompromising truth. How do I do this? Well, I want to share with you a story that some of you might remember. You, you, you won't know this part of the story, but you kind of remember what made headlines. Uh, back in 2012, people started finding out uh, that Chick-fil-A had donated to certain charities that upheld a biblical definition of marriage. If you also remember by this time period, this was also uh, when gay marriage really started to become uh, kind of mainstream culturally, which ev eventually a few years later led to the Supreme Court to change their definition of marriage, right, it, with the uh, Oberfell decision. And so this is when all this started uh, gaining steam. It was found out that Chick-fil-A donated to charities that um, supported the biblical one man, one woman for life definition of marriage. And so when this happened, uh, all these protests started breaking out against Chick-fil-A across the country. 
And then there was actually a protest against the protest when there was, a, I don't know if you remember this, some of you might remember this, there was a national Chick-fil-A day. By the way, Chick-fil-A had nothing to do with any part of this. So there was all these protests against Chick-fil-A, then all these people that were pro-Chick-fil-A protesting against the protesters, and so they organized this national Chick-fil-A day, and they're like, hey, if you love Chick-fil-A, go. And so there was this day that they designated. It was, by the way, up until that point at least, uh, the, the largest grossing day ever that Chick-fil-A ever had was this national Chick-fil-A day, people who were like protesting the protesters. And so um, it was, it's all to say, this was a big cultural division at this time. Big division. Some of you might remember it. Now, what you might not know is there's actually a really cool backstory to this kind of cultural fight that was going on. Uh, at the time, Dan Cathy, who was the owner of Chick-fil-A, he actually didn't join in on the protest or the protest against the protest. Uh, uh, Chick-fil-A actually never said publicly anything about this. They didn't even try to take advantage of the marketing for the people that were on their side. They actually never participated in this publicly in any way. And so Dan Cathy, the owner of Chick-fil-A, he didn't do any of that. Instead, what he ended up doing was he privately and behind the scenes reached out to one of the organizers of the protest against Chick-fil-A. It was a guy by the name of Shane Windemeyer, who uh, it was and is a passionate LGBT rights activist. So Dan reached out to him, and they started to have this private cor correspondent, and they actually started to develop a friendship with one another. And so if you want to put this picture on the screen... On your right, there's Dan Cathy. On the left, it is Shane Windemeyer. This was at uh, Dan Cathy's private box at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. So it's a really big college football game every year. And so he, after, later in the year, after all this controversy had happened, they'd become this friendship. He invited Shane to come to the game with him. And then, after all this, Shane wrote an article uh, for the Huffington Post entitled, Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. Which, by the way, you can still Google it and read it. It's a fantastic read. Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. So they start this friendship, and here's, I just want to read a quote uh, that Shane wrote in this article about their friendship. And you can put it on the screen. It says this. It is not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and lean in, uh, learn, uh, to, li to listen and learn in our government, in our communities, and in our families. Dan, Kathy, and I would together try to do better than each of us had experienced before. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for Campus Pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns. Dan sought first to understand, not to be understood. And then it says this. Then he says this. Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Unconditional grace. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. That's grace. But then he continues. It says, Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. But he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. Truth. Unconditional grace. Uncompromising truth. We need both. Now, in this story, in this scenario, culture was still called Dan Cathy, a bigot, all these sort of things. But Dan Cathy, with those he actually lived with, that's not the person that he was, certainly not with his relationship with Shane. And so, again, for us, if we were all about grace and we avoid truth, if you won't say or do anything that might bring tension to a relationship or make you unpopular at work or at school because it would publicly go against the worldly ideas, then you are avoiding controversy instead of following Jesus. That is avoiding controversy. That is not following Jesus. 
who, by the way, was so controversial, he was literally crucified. You don't kill nice people. He was so controversial, he was so against the world that they literally killed him. You don't crucify people who just go with the culture. This is why Jesus says this in Luke 9. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the father and the holy angels. So if you're ashamed of me, you should not expect me to be, be, be singing your praises or be welcoming you into the family of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying is we need courage. We need courage. We need to live with the truth that God's word has given us. And yet, on the other hand, if you lack grace and you use your Christian convictions to mistreat or to ostracize or to look down on others who think differently than you or to avoid the very sinners in your life that the Lord came to die for, then you'll teach the doctrines of Christ with a spirit of the Pharisees. Which, by the way, the Pharisees were not inviting people into the kingdom of God. They just weren't. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 9. He says, go and learn what this means. And he's quoting a couple of Old Testament texts. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, hold your truth in love and then receive those with grace who need to hear it. Jesus came for the mess. He came for sinners, which, by the way, includes you and includes me. And, of course, this tension of grace and truth, nobody embodied this better than Jesus. Nobody embodied this better than Jesus. And so I want to end maybe with just a story that some of you might be familiar with of John chapter 8, the story of John chapter 8, where in this story you have Jesus where, where this, these Pharisees had taken this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, right? They drag her out publicly and put her in front of Jesus. They put her in front of Jesus and they say to Jesus, our law, they're quoting Old Testament law, says that we need to stone this woman. What do you say? So they catch this woman in the act of adultery. Now you might be asking, why didn't they take the man? Which is a fair question. It's just worth knowing that in the ancient world, certainly ancient Rome, it was culturally acceptable for men to sleep around, but not for women. So this is why they take the woman. They let, it doesn't matter what God's law says. Even, uh, you know, kind of a lot of people, Jewish or not, there's like the men can do what they want, the woman couldn't. So they take this woman and they're trying to, the scripture says they're trying to trap Jesus publicly in front of people. What should we do? Should we stone this woman? Now, this is supposedly, this is a lose-lose situation for Jesus. It was a lose-lose situation for Jesus. Now, it's worth knowing, the Pharisees in, here, in this situation didn't care about justice. They just want to show people that Jesus is not someone worth following. Because here's the thing, if Jesus says, don't stone that woman, he says, don't stone that woman, then it would be argued that he was disavowing the law of Moses and that he should have no credibility as a Jewish rabbi. So he's this, this rabbi that's on the scene. By this point, he's pretty, pretty well known, pretty famous. He has all these crowds. And if he publicly says, don't do something that the law says, well, then it would be easy for them to say, see, he's a false prophet. Don't follow him. Yet if he says, stone her, he would be supporting a position that was actually hardly carried out in the first century. So first century Rome, this actually like never happened. And it actually would also go against uh, his reputation of caring for the down and out. If he says stone her. And actually, you might not know this, it would actually get him in trouble with Roman law. So the Jews were a pretty sizable population in Jerusalem and in Israel at this time. And so they allowed the Jews to self-govern themselves to a large degree. But one of the things the Jewish people could not do is, uh, is, is, uh, is play out uh, capital punishment. They were not allowed to kill somebody. Only Rome could do that. So if they stone this woman, and then that Rome finds out Jesus signed off on it, or he's the one that commanded it, they would have thrown him in jail and likely killed him. So this is a lose-lose situation for Jesus. So they asked Jesus what to do. And before responding, 
actually without saying anything, the scriptures tell us he gets down in the dirt and he starts writing in the dirt. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote. We don't know what Jesus wrote. But we actually do know this, and you might not know this, but in ancient society, long story short, again, it was culturally acceptable. And in fact, it was actually expected for men to go outside their marriage bed, but not women. If I were to analyze it to current day, if I could just be honest, real, real honest here, it's kind of like pornography in our culture today. Now, I know it's a men's issue and a woman's issue, but it's bigger for men. It's kind of like a lot of women assume, well, pornography is norm. Like I can't tell my husband or my boyfriend or fiance not to look at it. I just have to accept it. And so you have a lot of women who are in these relationships with men who do not treat them the way of Jesus because our culture just said, hey, pornography is something a guy has to do, so live with it. So this is the culture that she's in. Your husband can do this, but you can't. So he gets in the dirt, he starts writing. Now, what you might also not know is that in order to stone someone, those who participated in the stoning could not have participated in the crime itself or a similar crime in, in their own life. So I'm not saying this is the case, but let's say someone was uh, going to be stoned for stealing. Let's say they stole like a massive amount nobody who was participating in the stoning could have been charged for stealing anything in their life, no matter how small. If you had participated in the crime that is being committed via capital punishment, you were not to have allowed to have done it in your own life. And so, in order for someone to stone someone, again, they could not have done it themselves. Now, we don't know what Jesus says, but because of this, some commentators say that what Jesus might have been writing in the ground are the names of some of the women that these men had slept with. And can you imagine that's true? Jesus in the dirt. Sally. Sarah. Right? Kristen. Yeah, look at all these guys as he's writing the names of the women that they have done the exact same thing too. So, and so whatever he wrote, whatever he wrote, here's what this leads to. Last thing I read, John chapter 8. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he, only Jesus was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Grace, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Truth. So Jesus is saying here that everyone who would condemn you can't. The only one who can condemn you, me, because I'm actually perfect and sinless, won't. So that's grace. You have been forgiven. And then he says, go and leave your life of sin. That is truth. What you've done is not good. Do not continue down this path. What we need, the way of Jesus, unconditional grace and uncompromising truth. At the end of the day, this is the gospel, right? Sin deserves death and punishment. God is perfect. We are not. We deserve to be judged for the sins we have committed. Truth. Yet Jesus came to take your place to die for your sins. Grace. Grace. And so can I just speak to those? I know this is not a big room. Maybe you're watching online. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I, would, I just pray that you would open yourself up to the grace that God has for you, that he invited you in, just like he invited all of us in, not because we earned it or deserved it because we're awesome, but because he is, that he took the death that we deserve, that this woman deserved, that these Pharisees deserve, that these men that were going to stone her deserve, that he took it upon himself on the cross, and that he defeated death three days later by rising from the grave to welcome anyone and everyone who would follow in his way. That as you trust and follow Jesus, you are welcomed into God's kingdom. And can I also say this, listen, uh, especially for New City family, in two weeks, we're celebrating baptism at New City Church. Baptism is simply people who, have, who are going to publicly share what they've decided in their hearts, that Jesus is Lord. If you are a new follower of Jesus, or today's the day that you are choosing to follow Jesus, you need to get baptized. Just so you know, we already have a number of people signed up. New City family, you're going to want to be here on the 21st. You're going to hate it if you miss it. So you're going to hate it, okay? But you need to follow the way of Jesus. Can I just say this? If you're a follower of Jesus and you have not been baptized as well, um, I don't think, I don't think 
that you will do whatever Jesus asks you to do if you don't follow him in baptism. Baptism does not save us, but is a public declaration for others to see what Christ has done for himself. So if you're interested in baptism, again, you can text NCC Baptism, all one word, to 97,000, or check Baptism on a Connect card, or after service, I'll be here all day. I work one day a week, so I'll be here all day. Love to talk to you. Right, love to talk to you. Like, we want to celebrate this with you. We want to celebrate Jesus changing your life. And can I just say this as I close? Church, Christians, those who follow Jesus, we have an opportunity to live out this right here, this year. Listen, it's an election year which means full of hatred and vitriol. And I can't believe you this. And I, if Jesus is going to be supreme over all these things, we have to be comfortable being with people who think and vote and behave differently than we do. Because Jesus is Lord, not whoever's in the White House. Like we've got to be able to be uncomfortable with one another so that we can live out the grace and truth that Jesus offers.